from the studios of Farm Journal Broadcast. This is U.S. Farm Report. Well, we're back on the road and fighting Illini country this week for the U.S. Farm Report Golden Harvest 2021 College Roadshow. We're bringing you the show from the University of Illinois, and here's what's in store over the next 60 minutes. The White House says it's staying tough on China, but is there another chapter in the phase one trade agreement? The war against weeds. Simply opening up a new jug if a new product comes into the marketplace is going to continue to repeat what we've done historically in the past. How climate may be playing a role in how farmers combat increased wheat pressure in the coming years. From the farm to the feed. Yeah, we have a world-class nutrition program. Uh, and desperately in need of a world-class feed technology center. A state-of-the-art feed technology center that's bringing it all full circle. And in John's world, RFS reset risk. The 2021 U.S. Farm Report College Roadshow from the University of Illinois is brought to you by Golden Harvest. Learn how Golden Harvest is changing the game in corn and soybean products and providing service to farmers by visiting goldenharvestseeds.com. Now for the news, Congress is continuing to look into the livestock industry. The House Ag Committee this week holding yet another hearing on the matter. Members of the National Cattlemen's Beef Association, the National Pork Producers Council, along with Ag Secretary Tom Vilsack, testifying. And in an unusual move, a setting U.S. Senator, Republican Senator Chuck Grassley of Iowa, was invited to provide testimony. Grassley co-authoring a bill that would require meat packers to buy 50% of their weekly volume on the open or spot market. Many organizations representing producers spoke about the need to expand packer capacity with smaller processors and the need for greater price discovery. Adequate negotiated trade volumes are critical to our market's function. Thanks to efforts of producers, negotiated trade volumes are up. Some meat packers, however, have yet to demonstrate a serious commitment to purchasing cattle on a negotiated basis. The owner of FPL Food in Augusta, Georgia, speaking on behalf of the North American Meat Institute, he argued the cattle industry is driven by supply and demand. Not long ago, the cattle market was the reverse of today. In 2013, 14, and 15, the herd was small, and producers were making record profit while packers were losing money. But cattle industry leaders cautioned about a one-size-fits-all approach to any government action on mandatory purchasing. The hearing came after the release of an extensive report on the industry that was conducted by Texas A&M College of Agriculture and Life Sciences. An editor of the book saying there was general agreement that price discovery is important in the functioning of the cattle markets, but warned of the possible negative impact a policy of government-mandated buys could have on cattle production. Well, the Ag Secretary this week also laying out a new effort to expand meat processing capability in the U.S. to try to prevent bottlenecks in the food supply chain. The plan involves another $100 million in funding from the American Rescue Plan Act. Loan guarantees would be used to help start up or expand businesses in the food supply chain that process, manufacture, or help distribute food. To reduce the risk to bankers and to others who are providing the financing uh, for uh, such things as mobile processing facilities or cold storage uh, capacity being expanded or uh, producer groups uh, uh, co establishing a co-op to brand or market their product. Uh, these loan guarantees are important to bankers and those who provide the financing because they may not be as familiar uh, with, the, uh, with the risk associated and there's a little reluctance on the part of 
uh, commercial lenders to establish uh, and to provide the credit. The Biden administration is starting to lay the groundwork for new trade negotiations with China. U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai speaking at a Washington think tank this week. She says she will first talk with her Beijing counterpart to hold China accountable for its phase one trade deal commitments. The U.S. will restart its tariff exclusions that some U.S. importing companies pay. But for now, those tariffs against China will remain in place. She says the Biden administration has serious concerns with Beijing that were not addressed in the trade deal, including trade practices the administration says are harmful to the U.S. economy. U.S. agriculture has not been spared either. While we have seen more exports to China in recent years, market share is shrinking and agriculture remains an unpredictable sector for U.S. farmers and ranchers who have come to rely heavily on this market. China's regulatory authorities continue to deploy measures that limit or threaten the market access for our producers and their bottom line. Trade industry experts estimate China's buys of all U.S. exports through August are running at about 62% of the phase one target. Well, it happened again. Another ag-related business hit by a ransomware attack. This time, the attack shut down popular online farm equipment and farmland auction sites. Sandhills Global, headquartered in Lincoln, Nebraska, which hosts the sites, was the latest target. On Tuesday, its websites were back up and running. A land appraiser based in Iowa told me that several online land auctions were also impacted by that ransomware attack that started last Friday. Now, this comes on the heels of two other attacks on ag. Late last month, an attack infected the computer systems of Crystal Valley Cooperative in Minnesota. And new cooperative in Iowa was also hit by ransomware group Black Matter. Well, it was a bit of a soggy week here at the University of Illinois this week, but will that rain continue? We have your harvest forecast with Mike Hoffman next. for a check of weather with meteorologist Mike Kaufman. Mike, farmers in Illinois have not had many rain delays this week, but guess what? Scattered rain this week did bring harvest to a halt in areas of the state. Good morning to you, Tyne. Yeah, that slow-moving storm system has finally moved away. It caused some problems in uh, lots of the area from the Mississippi River Valley to the east, and you can still see those wet areas uh, from southeast Texas all the way up into uh, southern and central Illinois. Uh, much of Kentucky and Tennessee and even parts of the Western Great Lakes on the wet side. Kind of uh, a little bit of wetness and dryness throughout the Northeast, depending on where you live, and kind of the same idea through the Plain States, as you can see. But from North Dakota through much of the West, still pretty dry out there as far as the root zone is concerned and as far as a long-term drought monitor is concerned, pretty much those same areas. It's uh, been a little better in Southern Arizona, Southern New Mexico, but you can see some spots at least over the past month have developed from uh, Oklahoma on up into Iowa and a few other spots in the uh, central and northern portions of the Plain States. Let's check the weather for this week. Well, we had that cutoff uh, low for much of last week over the eastern portions of the country. That's moved away. Now we have a big trough out west with some energy right there in the central plains. That kind of moves north. Notice the uh, cutoff low 
as we head into the middle of the week. That will be a slow moving storm system much farther west this week, which will keep the warmth in the eastern parts of the country. But then as we head through time, that does uh, merge uh, on up into the main part of the jet stream by the time we get to Friday. And that may shift some cooler air finally uh, toward the eastern portions of the country, at least temporarily as we head through next weekend. Let's take a look at things day by day. We have a storm system over uh, northern Missouri as we uh, start today on Monday. Cold front down through Texas, scattered showers and thunderstorms with that. Very warm to the east of it. Uh, some showers up to the north of the Great Lakes, and then there's uh, that slow-moving storm system with that cutoff low out west. Rain, and yes, those are mountain snow areas there, uh, even into the Sierra Nevadas, potentially in California. By Wednesday, that low hasn't moved a lot, but it is moving northeastward, so rain through most of that, maybe some mountain snow. Next cold front in the Pacific Northwest, scattered showers and uh, even some thunderstorms into the southern portions of the country. And you can see by Friday, that area of low pressure is up just north of Minnesota. The cold front then stretching eastward from there. So scattered showers and thunderstorms along it as that cooler air moves in behind it. Next storm system out in the Pacific Northwest. So here's my 30 day outlook for temperatures. Most of the eastern two thirds of the country expected to be warmer than normal, below normal for the Northwest, Northern Rockies, even into uh, Northern Nevada, Northern California. 30 day outlook for precipitation. I'm going above normal for the Western Plains, which most of this area is dry. So that's good news back into the Northwest above normal. This is not so good news for much of this area. Some of it's wet from the uh, middle Mississippi Valley into the Southeast, Southern Texas and the Northeast expected to be below normal for the 30 day outlook time. Thanks, Mike. Well, the price pressure right now is it typical harvest time pressure or something more at play. Our marketing roundtables are from the University of Illinois with University of Illinois experts and economists next. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. This weekend, our marketing roundtable here from the University of Illinois, thanks to Golden Harvest, Joe Jansen, Scott Irwin, as well as Matt Bennett joining us. Uh, you know, Matt, before I get into these University of Illinois export experts, you are an alum here. We will not mention what year. You are farmer, agmarket.net. You are in the field right now. There are some high hopes for this Illinois corn crop this year. There were. Do you think that story has changed as these combines get rolling? You know, I think relatively speaking, Illinois might not achieve that 214 that we originally forecasted uh, here last month. Uh, I, 214 was an awful lofty goal. 210 was the old high. Uh, I'm not so sure that we are, are going to go over that. Uh, I'm not sure we're going to be much under it as well. I think the thing about the corn crop here in Illinois is that there's a lot of variability. Yeah, there's folks that are going to tell you, hey, this is the best corn crop I've ever had. No question about it. But there's also going to be several folks, especially when you get into the, I would say, the northwestern quadrant of the state in the western part of the state where they're going to come in significantly below what they were expecting, just like in the middle of August. So I think there's going to be some disappointment there as well. It's probably going to end up averaging out to something a little bit lower than what the USDA is currently forecasting. But at the same time, the Western Corn Belt, Scott, we've heard some, you know, uh, farmers say, listen, I got in there and it's better than what I had anticipated heading into harvest. So do you think the Western Corn Belt is going to see yields actually rise coming up in this next USDA report? I do. Uh, that's uh, what the anecdotal reports that uh, I'm hearing uh, in my home state of Iowa in particular, uh, my family farms out there and our early yield reports are quite good. 
and better than what the USDA had in their August and September report. So I think that the Western Corn Belt is likely to probably offset any uh, declines in the Eastern Corn Belt. Okay, offset the declines, but Matt, when it all shakes out, do you think it's going to significantly change the yield and the production picture if we do see Western Corn Belt yields go up and maybe the Eastern Corn Belt yields come down? It sure seems to me that they're going to be offsetting. Uh, I don't think that we're going to change a whole lot. I can see us going up a little bit. I can see us going down a little bit. But as far as the U.S. number goes, I just don't see it changing significantly. Okay. Well, you know, Joe, at the same time, when we look at this demand picture right now, a lot of question marks also uh, when it comes to demand. And so as you see um, export inspections, as you see some of these sales hit the books, are you concerned about demand? I, I, I do have serious concerns in the part the, the month of September, which is sort of time to really make hay uh, in terms of export sales, was slow. Some of that was sort of some of the stuff in the Gulf that we saw slowness of movement. But in terms of just making making export sales, we didn't we saw a really a slowdown in pace, uh, and that means we've got to kind of pick that up somewhere else later on in the marketing year. A, a slowdown in sales. What about actual exports? We know Hurricane Ida, the impact that it had on the Gulf. We knew that there was going to be a time where we yeah. would see a slowdown. Has it been significant? Yeah, I mean, just in tr on the sales side, not not on movement itself, but on sales. I and mean, if you compare this year to last year, uh, sales in September were sort of half, about half of what they were um, uh, in September a year ago. So we really kind of need to pick up the pace if we're going to see if we're going to get to the export number that USDA is projecting 26 million metric tons uh, going to China that that number is, is pretty big and we're just not on pace to get there right now. Do you think that forces USDA to make an adjustment in their next report? I, I do. Uh, if you look at the Beijing attache report that came out last week, they're projecting 20 million metric tons of corn imports in China. So I think that number is going to come down. It's okay. a question of how much. Okay, so Matt, as we, it seems like there are some concerns about demand. As you look at the production picture kind of changing, we have seen some price pressure when you look at corn and soybeans. Is it just harvest related or are there other factors weighing on prices right now? I don't think there's any, uh, you know, any doubt that there's other factors that are going to weigh on prices. Uh, uh, my personal opinion, this corn market, though, has hung in there quite well going into harvest. I mean, you, you've seen, you know, still uh, uh, pushing 550 at times and December corn hanging out in that 530 to 540 area. I think producers should feel really blessed by that at a time whenever, obviously, we've seen a little bit of pressure. But I think moving forward, you've got to ask yourself, uh, what impact is this report going to have on us? Uh, and I've got to think that as long as you don't see a significant adjustment as far as carryouts concerned, I don't think you're going to see a big price difference. I think you're still going to be looking at this chopping around market and a, and a lot of uh, sideways movement. Okay, Scott, you agree with that? Uh, I do in the short run. My personal outlook is that there's a lot of downside risk, uh, especially in the corn market, uh, from these lofty levels and given the demand kind of issues yeah. that Joe talked about. Yeah. I think there, uh, we could see prices just kind of grind down through the rest of the marketing year. All right, well, we have a lot more to discuss here on U.S. Farm Report. Let's take a break, and we'll be back with more. Got equipment to sell privately but tired of scams and hassles? Visit MachineRepeat.com and click Sell Mine. MachineRepeat.com, the simple and secure way to buy and sell equipment online. Well, Scott Irwin talked about the RFS, but is there more risk with renewable fuels that we should be exploring? John Phipps does just that from his farm just down the road here in Illinois this week.
As part of the growing worries among many of our citizens about Chinese global economic and political power, the idea of dependence has become a real worry to some Americans. Either dependence on Chinese imports or Chinese exports, we just don't like the idea of having less control over world trade and world influence. Now these are legitimate concerns, but they're certainly not new or unique. The rest of the globe has been watching our country's actions for decades, knowing that what happens here could affect them significantly. We may be discounting, or at least improperly ranking as a result, other risks, particularly those here at home. The ethanol industry is a prime example for this misperception, and it's about to become a lot clearer. The renewable fuel standard reset in 2022 will have a large impact on our corn industry and ripples out to other industries. Since it is an unfree market, so to speak, economics will play second fiddle to politics and other forces. Our roundtables today should frame the possibility for the profitability of corn and ethanol producers for the next few years. For other uses, like feed or exports, we know there is a market price that will make the corn disappear. But we simply don't know what that is for ethanol because buyers have bought more or less at gunpoint. There may be some hint what that number is in what other countries are willing to pay for ethanol exports from the U.S. But the political uncertainty makes even those prices suspect. With this decision essentially in the hands of an agency, not Congress, the familiar electoral calculations will be less important. If it turns out that the RFS is lowered, it is unlikely other buyers will rush in to buy either corn or ethanol surplus. There may be an unmandated price for ethanol that will be high enough to keep the industry going. We simply don't know. That, in my opinion, is real dependence. In short, if you live by the mandate, there's a good chance you could perish by the mandate. Perhaps this is a market risk that producers have discounted because it is domestic and not foreign. But for a usage that takes about a third of our corn crop, I would rate the reset risk much higher than, say, exports. Our growing disengagement with other countries for political or even xenophobic reasons may be skewing our perception of what we should be worrying about the most. Thanks, John. Well, when we come back, Missionary Pete has tractor tails. Welcome back to Tractor Tales, folks. This week we're going to check out a Farmall Super MTA with some deep family roots. This is a 1954 Super MTA, and it's the international tractor. And a really cool story behind this tractor is my great-grandfather owned this tractor. Well, similar one, not the same one. He actually gave it to his grandson, which is my uncle Carl, and he sold it quite a while ago and traded it in for a different tractor at the time and because they were used for farming then and now we just use them for parades and shows. This specific one my great-grandfather used to farm with it. When it came time to picking a tractor I'm one of the oldest grand uh, children 
so I got to choose first and I just thought this had a lot of neat history and even though it's not his it still has a piece of him with it. We use this tractor mainly for parades and shows like I said we don't farm a whole lot with them since they are older and they're antiques to our family we like to collect them and just have them and show them off in the parades. All my friends think it's really cool and I have my best friend actually loves the same models of tractors and the same brand and all of our friends have different types of tractors that they like. We feud over them all the time. Some like the green, some like red. Well, the fight against weeds, it seems to be growing more intense, and that may not be changing anytime soon. We'll tell you why as our 2021 College Roadshow continues from right here at the University of Illinois. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast. Welcome back to U.S. Farm Report. Trusted, timely, tradition. The 2021 U.S. Farm Report College Roadshow from the University of Illinois is brought to you by Golden Harvest. Learn how Golden Harvest is changing the game in corn and soybean products and providing service to farmers by visiting goldenharvestseeds.com. Welcome back to our 2021 U.S. Farm Report Golden Harvest College Roadshow from right here at the University of Illinois. Well, supply chain issues are a major concern for crop and chem companies right now, so much so that there's talk about certain chemistries being in short supply next year. But there's also another factor impacting the long game in fighting weeds. Planted on the south side of campus. This is actually one of the research farms that the Department of Crop Sciences at the University of Illinois still utilizes this day. Our fields yielding fruitful research for farmers. There's so many different facets of the research that goes on here. Primarily digging into corn and soybeans, small grains are also in play and producing data that's now decades deep. But our primary work that we do here in the herbicide evaluation program is to look at various types of products that are in the marketplace. What is their spectrum of control? These fields are a second home to Aaron Hager and ones he's waded through for nearly 30 years. Years ago, uh, the person who was running the evaluation program, uh, uh, Mr. Doug Maxwell, used a software program that allowed all these data to be archived and stored for many, many years. While the data is useful every year, it's three decades of information that stacked up nearly untouched. Dr. Hager is just two doors down from me and uh, we've had some great conversations over the years. And, and it was a number of years ago we had a conversation about making use of larger data sets. It's pretty intriguing thinking about having hundreds of environments, if not thousands of environments, to get a better understanding of uh, weather variability on crop production. The focus was what effect climate change would have on weed species found right here in Illinois. Would a atmosphere enriched with CO2, for example, would that, would that more favor C3 species? Hager says just honing in on one or two years of data doesn't paint the bigger picture on trends that have been taking shape over the past 30 years. And we've seen water hemp in the past 25 years really expand its range across Illinois. Now, was this all climate change or was this something else? Well, we really don't know for sure what, what component each of these various factors played. But we've taken a species that literally 30 years ago, hardly anybody recognized in the state of Illinois. It's indigenous, it's always been here. 
but now we can find that virtually in every one of Illinois' 102 counties. By digging through the thousands of data sets and analyzing factors like weather, yields, what weeds were present at the time, and more, the team uncovered this. What we found most recently was that incomplete weed control exacerbates corn yield loss due to adverse weather, particularly dry or hot conditions around corn silking. On a scale of zero being the worst and 100% being the best, Williams says even 94% weed control can produce problems. So it doesn't take many out there to cause a major, major problem and have a major impact on the corn yield, particularly at these uh, important growth stages of the crop right around silking with adverse weather. As weather plays a role in weed control, Hager says it's something growers will continue to battle. I think it's, it's pretty safe to say that weeds are going to be able to adapt, whether it's to changes in the climate, changes into how we're trying to manage these. Uh, they're, they're weeds for a reason. They're very adaptable. They have a great deal of plasticity in how they grow. They will figure out a way through the evolutionary process to survive, to reproduce. That's why these weed scientists say a single approach will not work with weeds today. Simply opening up a new jug if a new product comes into the marketplace is going to continue to repeat what we've done historically in the past. So trying to maybe move the goalpost to thinking about what else can we do to try to ensure that by the end of the growing season that there's no weed seed that's added back into the soil seed bank. I think ultimately that's the victory, that's the win. Even as the University of Illinois is already coordinating with other pools of data from land-grant universities across the country, Williams says he hopes this research motivates additional innovation and technology to create change. I think this, you know, sends a cautionary alarm that weeds are not getting easier to manage. The kinds of weather we're headed to is exactly the kinds of conditions where incomplete weed control will actually exacerbate corn yield loss. So now's the time to act. Now's the time to come up with new ways of managing weeds. Now I did ask Hager if he thought a world without weeds is possible any time in our lifetime and his answer no. Well when we come back we'll pick back up with our marketing discussion that happens in just two minutes. Welcome back to US Farm Report this weekend. Well thank you for bearing the, the moisture. It's been a pretty uneventful harvest as far as weather goes. And then, of course, we're here and it, and it rains. Uh, but Scott, as we continue, or I mean, Scott mentioned uh, the demand picture and the production picture. But Joe, as we look at the demand picture in China, uh, you know, some some talk about phase one deal. It had gone rather quiet. We're ending phase one deal later this year. It sounds like the administration is going to meet with some counterparts in China. Do you think that China is going to meet its phase one commitments or is there concern that they will miss the mark? Uh, I think there's concern that they'll miss the mark. I don't know if that's the big forcing function that pushes U.S. corn or soybean exports higher or lower. Um, that phase one target is a, is a big number that's hard to meet with corn and soybean sales. It's got to be a bigger picture, you know, across all agricultural products. Um, but I do think sort of there is like a lot of trade uncertainty with China and that number is, is more uncertain in the, in the current environment where uh, the relationship between the U.S. and China is still one with significant tension. It is significant tension. And as we look at ending phase one, we thought we were going to talk about phase two. Haven't heard a lot about phase two. Is that, do you think that, that some of these 
you know, impressive exports that we've had for corn and soybeans. Could that continue without a phase two or is that necessary when there's a lot of debate on exactly why China has, you know, made the buys that they did this past year? I think there needs to be a strong fundamental reason inside China for significant, a significant need for imports. Uh, the part of the problem with that is it's going to come in terms of not just imports from the United States, which were incredibly strong last year, but imports on corn from Ukraine and Brazil and on soybeans from Brazil and Ar Argentina. So that's a co pretty competitive space and one where we had a pretty unique opportunity in the last year uh, where Ukraine and Brazil crops weren't super big and now that's, I mean, they're gonna, there's going to be big crops coming out of Brazil and Ukraine this year, in, the, in the coming marketing year. Yeah, so if we do have those big crops coming out of Brazil, Matt, how does that change the whole global supply <laughs> and demand picture as we move through the winter months? Right, I, you know, and so the assumption is that we're going to have big crops, but we all, we also have to remember that that was the assumption a year ago. And so the the Brazilian soybean crop really wasn't impacted by La Nina much, but we have another La Nina this year. And so is the bean crop going to get planted in a timely fashion? Yes, it sure looks like it's going to be. But the more uh, I guess the more uh, overriding factor for me is is this corn crop, you know, because uh, typically you get into dry season towards the end of their growing season as far as the, the safrina crops concerned. So if La Nina does take hold and it's strong, uh, then I would be concerned that this corn crop, which we need to be a big corn crop out of Brazil, uh, might actually take a bit of a hit. So that's where I would be more concerned than anything. But by all means, if you have big crops out of Brazil and Ukraine's uh, going to harvest a big crop here, it sure seems to me that uh, you've got to assume that the export program will take a bit of a hit. Yeah. I do think this marketing year that we're in currently right now, though, uh, that the exports are going to pick up uh, as far as corn's concerned. <laughs> Well, Scott, as we look at the demand picture, there's not just questions about China, but also the renewable fuel standard. And we've heard, you know, talk back and forth. Oh, the, the, we're going to have uh, the White House actually cut the RVOs. No, it's not going to happen. I mean, it's so back and forth right now. Do you think there is significant risk when it comes to corn demand from ethanol? And have we hit a the high mark when it comes to that demand? Uh, I am different. I see significant risk to the RVO numbers, but not to physical ethanol use uh, from that policy risk. The policy risk is more on the biodiesel and renewable diesel side. Uh, and the big issue for physical use of ethanol in the U.S. is uh, how big is uh, E10 gasoline demand going to be, which is connected to the economic recovery, the pandemic. Right now, things are looking you know, reasonably stable. And so I just see kind of a continuation from here going forward of the path we were on pre-pandemic. Okay. Well, you mentioned renewable diesel real quick with soybeans. I mean, there's a lot of hope that renewable diesel and sustainable aviation fuel could be big for soybeans. But Joe, when you look at soybeans, the potential for, I mean, we've heard some monster yields out there. How is the demand picture? Are you as concerned demand for soybeans as you are for corn? Uh, again, I think you've got some good, some good reasons to think that there's strong demand in the United States. So on this, I, I'm not maybe as concerned, in part because the, the, the export program on that side, I mean, just that the exports are, and China is a much sort of more, maybe more stable in terms of like their need for soybean, their soybean demand is sort of a, a more, less variable thing year to year. Okay, real quick, Matt, you agree with that? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I guess uh, for the soybean perspective, I, I'm not super friendly right now uh, for a variety of reasons. Demand, I think, is going to be pretty strong, but this crop's getting bigger. I feel pretty strongly this crop's getting bigger, maybe maybe uh, more than what we're going to find out next week. I think as you learn more about the crop, the crop's going to continue to get bigger as far as soybeans are concerned. Yeah, heard some impressive soybean yields. All right, Joe, Scott, Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for braving the elements of uh, Illinois weather and the rain. We appreciate you. Uh, let's take a quick break, and then we'll have much more from our 2021 College Roadshow right here at the University of Illinois. Well, just down the road from right here at Memorial Stadium, a new state-of-the-art facility is almost finished, and it's bringing crops a full circle from farm to feed. In the middle of cornfields that set on the edge of U of I's campus. The Feed Technology Center actually allows us to create a full cycle in our research operations. Is this massive $20 million state-of-the-art facility. This facility was really built to advance our knowledge in food manufacturing, animal nutrition, and really to serve the three main pillars of a land-grant university. The Feed Technology Center, which is just weeks away from completion, is already being put to work. We're, we're harvesting our, our crops now, uh, delivering them and storing them here in the in the, the storage areas. A full circle facility for faculty, staff and students. These diets that are being bagged in here actually is going to be delivered not too far from here to one of our animal facilities to do research. And so this is another component that we're so happy to have because now we can teach students how to make the diet, learn more about ingredients, but then we can also measure the outcomes. With a $20 million price tag, the new Feed Technology Center propelled the university to this from this. And that was done with the help of partnerships and donors like Archer's Daniel Midland, Illinois Farm Bureau, and Illinois Pork Producers. So this facility in terms of research can really be leveraged to help out folks like myself that are in the nutrition, animal nutrition field to use different novel ingredients, alternative ingredients, and uh, find out their nutritional value and how they can be incorporated in diets for livestock, companion animals, and a myriad of other things. From exploring the use of insects and vegetable proteins for pets to incorporating seaweed into cattle feed diets, the research is happening here. We have some very unique capabilities in, in having a facility that uniquely combines you know, a, a pellet mill and an extrusion uh, system, the ability to store our own grain for the, really the first time. With technology in the name, it's the technology that makes this facility so cutting edge. This is a, a project that um, we've been talking about as a department for probably 25 years. Talk that turned into reality starting in 2018. You know, we have a world-class nutrition program uh, and desperately in need of a world-class feed technology center. Johnson says the former feed mill was nearly a century old. It's been an amazing facility for the department. I like to point out that uh, the original research that led to the development of the corn soy diet that is fed all over the world to, to livestock and poultry was developed at that old feed mill. A great foundation, but one that lacked the technology to support current and future research here. It's really hard for you to prepare professionals that will be going to a very technical driven uh, facilities now for uh, food manufacturing without that technology. So here we have a lot of automation happening from the time that we receive grains all the way to the, the finishing products bagging is a semi-automatic system with a robotic system.
From automation to technology that can help detect when protein content is too low, it allows students then to make the needed adjustments on site. The piloting equipment provides a, a, a way of providing steam and moisture and really adding or changing some of the structural as well as the nutritional component of that diet and that can be op that can optimize utilization of the diet or allow the inclusion of a diverse pool of ingredients. But it's the ability to provide hands-on learning for a wide variety of majors, even outside the College of ACES, means the possibilities here are vast. Our hope in here is to is really to become a national and international hub for animal nutrition, feed science, food science, uh, food science and safety, and. Uh, we hope that we're in the right direction to get that done. Out with the old and in with the new. A competitive advantage that could have roots for years to come. They say it truly was a team effort to get that facility where it is today. Well, when we come back, John Phipps. Well, the talk about trade and China was revived this week with the U.S. Trade Representative vowing to stay tough on China. And U.S. agriculture's reliance on China is a debate that isn't going away. Here's John Phipps. In June last year, I received a letter from John Johnson, who is a pork council consultant. It included information about pork exports to China. Now, the numbers for this year are on a similar trend, raising the question in some minds whether our pork industry is too dependent on the China market. This is from that report. The story forward shifts to rumors that China will halt U.S. pork purchases. Well, we now know they didn't. This would have a sharp impact on prices since they account for nearly half of U.S. pork exports and 11% of production. The author was Brett Stewart at Global Agri-Trends. Pork exports to everybody have been record-breaking, but the Chinese problem with African swine fever is taking a little more time to correct. As you can see from pork monthly exports starting around July of 2020, they took a quantum leap and they haven't looked back. The current year is in green and could well match last year's record numbers. In what I think is an effort to find a problem where one doesn't exist, we have started using the term dependent for what are really market successes. Pork is one example because of the sharp price rises as the world and notably China recover from setbacks including ASF, the pandemic, and currency exchange rates. All sellers are dependent by definition on their customers. Labeling this exchange of money for goods in terms like dependent implies an economic or even political mismatch. If markets are relatively free, they are by definition transactions between equals. Each get what it, what it wants from the other on terms they've already agreed to. If there is any dependence, it works both ways. The worry that China buyers could abruptly leave the market would have economic repercussions on the American pork industry, but it would have a huge political impact in their country. So could some unfortunate disruption here at home. Ask beef producers about BSE, for example. We have market experts here and abroad looking for any signs and placing bets with real money of just such a development. Producers are gauging similar risks. In other words, looking this gift horse in the mouth is unlikely to prove those risks very high. If selling to the world, including China, is a form of dependence, 
domestic consumption can carry some comparable risks. Always remember that farmers get paid for two things, an actual product and enduring the risk of producing it. Thanks, John. And remember, you can email John your thoughts or your comments. That's at mailbag at usfarmreport.com. Well, when we come back, how some students are serving up food science and nutrition in a unique way. That's next. U.S. Farm Report is brought to you by AgriGold, your seed ally in the field with unparalleled options that perform on your farm. Learn more at agrigold.com. Well, there's one cafe here at the University of Illinois that's operated by students. And the opportunity that the cafe is serving up is creating an appetite for future careers. So this cafe is student run. Yeah, I'm just helping out. It is a class, the FSHN 340, and it is for students to come and learn how to run a restaurant. This is dietetic students and hospitality management, so people who will either be supervising or running a restaurant or some food service in the future. Let's go ahead and eat everything. A lot of our menu items have changed, and that's geared towards promoting nutrition and nutritionally dense food. We've got fresh salads every day, fresh fruit every day. It's really nice that it's like centralized location, fresh food. When I tell you that everything is prepared from scratch back there, I mean it like down to the dressing, the tomato sauce. Everything back there is scratch made. It's not only a hot meal, it's a high quality hot meal for free here. One of our things is we donate to the Food Assistance and Wellbeing Program. So everything behind me, if it's not gone on Friday, it either goes home with students to feed them or it goes to the Food Assistance and Wellbeing Program. And we donate all of our leftover food, fresh fruit cups, cookies, anything that we have left, we give to them and they distribute to students over the weekend. That does it for U.S. Farm Report this weekend. Join us next weekend as we are back on the road for our 2021 College Roadshow, this time from the University of Missouri. Have a great weekend, everyone. U.S. Farm Report is produced and distributed by Farm Journal Broadcast.